We would be we we would just not be who we are unless we had music. So it makes us who we are. I think video more than any art can kind of like trick you into learning something. Yeah, it's 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 a very efficient method of teaching. The artfully crafted soundtrack from a short film, The Function of Music, introduces us to our guest this week. Sam Morrill is the Director of Curation at Vimeo and oversees their flagship channel known as Staff Picks. Sam reveals how his team of just five staff managed to sift through tens of millions of videos uploaded each year to pick the best few thousand. That really is the best of the best and amounts to only a fraction of 1%. If you're an independent filmmaker, this process is very handy to know when uploading your own work. And if you're a teacher, it's also some comfort knowing the effort that goes into selecting quality. Oh, and I learned a new way of thinking about what makes Vimeo so distinct from that other video sharing platform. See if you like it as much as me. The best short films for lifelong learning recommended by teachers for teachers. This is Short Films Teachers Love with your host, Richard Lee. My name is Sam Morrill. I'm the director of curation at Vimeo. So what that means is I lead Vimeo's in-house curation team. So we are a team of five full-time curators that uh, spend most of our time looking for great videos on Vimeo and uh, supporting and promoting those videos across the site. Mm. I think I read somewhere your description is it's an insane task, and I imagine that's true. I mean, this the amount of content that can come from anywhere of any quality, how do you even begin to, to cope with that and deal with it? Yeah, so it's, it's an insane and arguably impossible task uh, to curate a site like Vimeo because, as you know, Vimeo is an open, share, open video sharing platform, so... We literally have tens of millions of videos uploaded to the site every year. There's obviously no way that we can watch all of those videos. Um, So it's incumbent upon my team to find and develop processes for finding those videos that stand the best chance of being awesome and then watching them and deliberating as a team and deciding which ones we want to promote on Vimeo. Mm. So what's your basic approach then give me some day-to-day things you do some weekly you know some longer strategy things that you do to do that sure so the flagship channel on vimeo for the best videos is the vimeo staff picks channel so when a user comes to vimeo for the first time um, the first videos that they're seeing promoted on the home page are vimeo staff picks Um, we currently feature about four staff picks per day which uh, translates to about 1300 per year And we try to feature kind of a wide array of uh, genres and styles in the Staff Picks channel. So it's a combination of dramatic shorts, comedic shorts, as well as music videos, animations, action sports videos. It really runs the gamut and it's supposed to give the viewer, you know, a really high quality cross section of the sorts of videos that you can find on Vimeo. Um, In order to find those videos, uh, we have a variety of different techniques. Um, First and foremost, um, we look to the Vimeo community. So everyone on the Vimeo curation team follows thousands of creators. So I personally follow about 2,500 different creators on Vimeo. And so one of the first things I do, yeah, so one of the first things I do when I come in every day is I 
I, you know, go into my feed, I see what those creators are uploading and I kind of scan through that list. I see what looks promising and I kind of uh, will flag certain things to, to check out. That said, you know, we don't want to rely wholly on those lists of creators that we're following because then, you know, we would only be featuring the same, you know, 5,000 creators over and over. And one of the most exciting things about curating for Vimeo is discovering new talent and discovering new creators that we weren't familiar with previously, but have just popped onto the site and have amazing work that we want to share. So to do that, um, we rely pretty heavily on the trending feed on Vimeo. So this is something that's accessible to, to everyone. So when you go to Vimeo for the first time below the staff picks, um, there will be a, a what's trending feed. And that gives you kind of a snapshot of the most popular videos on Vimeo at the moment. Um, and so the way that that feed works is it is algorithmically sourced, but there's a layer of curation on top of it. So it's not, it's not like a raw feed of the most popular videos on Vimeo based on plays or likes or anything like that. It's um, these are videos that are, that are popular on Vimeo that have kind of been, uh, that have been looked at by the Vimeo curation team. And then we push those to the official trending feed that, that users can see. So we look, we look to that every day, all day to see um, what is organically trending on the site, because that way we can bring new creators into the mix that we weren't previously familiar with. And then I would say the, the two other most important sources for discovering staff picks and the best videos on Vimeo, one of them is uh, third-party curators, so independent curators on and off of Vimeo. So there's a really great selection of channels on Vimeo that are curated by people who don't work for Vimeo or just, you know, independently uh, curating either just for fun or maybe for another website. Um, so, you know, an example of that would be uh, Boom, uh, which is... Uh, it's the word boom spelled with, let me think, uh, seven O's. And it's uh, curated by this guy, Jeff Hamada, who's based in Vancouver. And that's like one of the best channels on Vimeo. Um, he also has a website by the same name, but he has a pretty active presence on Vimeo. But then you have Motionographer, you have Short of the Week, you have um, Nowness, Director's Notes, Curious Brain. There's a, there's a bunch of these these channels that are really popular. So we look to them every day to see what they're featuring. So you you kind of you crowdsourcing your own curation. You're actually looking mm -hmm. to other curators to support what you're doing, which is great. Absolutely, mm -hmm. and you know it's a two way street. They're they're looking to staff picks as much as we're looking to them. So everyone's kind of scratching one another's backs. But that said, everyone has their individual taste. So you know, independent curators will regularly feature stuff that isn't necessarily right for Vimeo curation and vice versa. So yeah, so we look to independent curators quite a bit. And then I would say the fourth area that we look to the most is the film festival world. So as of about five or six years ago, we started regularly attending all the major film festivals in the world, um, going to their short screenings and seeing the short films that they were featuring at their festivals. Um, and that's become a bigger and bigger source over time of Vimeo staff picks. Mm. And and I think that's one of your new things as well, is it you've called it premieres? Yeah, so we have a program called um, Staff Pick Premieres. So any film that has played in competition um, at an Oscar qualifying event within the last two years. And there's about 200 Oscar qualifying events and they're all around the world. Any film that, that, that 
that falls into that category can be submitted for consideration for staff pick premier. And all you have to do is email premieres at vimeo.com for more information. And we have a submission form that, uh, that we link out to when you, when you email that address. Um, so yeah, so I encourage, you know, anyone who's listening, um, who's had a film play at one of these Oscar qualifying events over the last couple of years to strongly consider submitting, we consider everything that gets submitted. Um, and it's been a really, you know, valuable source for us, uh, for the staff picks channel more, more broadly, because sometimes, you know, something will get submitted and maybe it's not right for staff pick premieres, but, um, you know, we're happy to give it a Vimeo staff pick and, and that can be just as good for the filmmaker. What up everyone, it's your girl, Superwoman. And this video is my way of encouraging guys around the world to do cute things for their girlfriends. And when I Sam and I talked a lot about the difference between YouTube and Vimeo, and I rambled on for a while about watching my own children's viewing habits. And my worry that quality film was being marginalized as something elitist. I didn't quite form a question, but thankfully Sam got where I was going with it all. I mean, I, I've thought about this a lot, and recently... You know, I think the best way for me to kind of distinguish YouTube and Vimeo in a way that I, I, I don't mean in any sort of uh, derogatory sense is I, th I really think of YouTube as on-camera talent and Vimeo as behind-the-camera talent. Mm. I think that that's really the easiest way to distill the difference between the two platforms. That's Hadn't and, thought about that before. That's a good distinction. Yeah. And with regards to your kids' viewing habits and, um, you know, this new generation of kids that are growing up and the stuff that they like to watch, I think the million-dollar question for me is, are they still going to want to watch webcam vids when they're 30 years old? You know, when they grow up a little and you know, the world gets a little more complicated and maybe they're looking for some stories to kind of shed some light on what's going on around them. And I'm inclined to say no. And here's the thing. I, th I think that a lot of the YouTube personalities have big careers ahead of them as actors, as, you know, media personalities, Absolutely. no doubt. Yeah. Like some, you know, th th we're going to get some news anchors. I'm, I have no doubt in 10 or 15 years that got their start on YouTube. And that's already kind of happening. I mean, you look at the Young Turks, they've kind of emerged as like this this, this media player. But yeah, I, th I think what will end up happening is a lot of the directors that are popular on Vimeo are going to start working with on-camera personalities that are popular on YouTube and they're going to create the next generation of, of Hollywood. That's I think that's kind of the way it's going to work. Yeah. There's plenty more of this discussion in the full-length interview where Sam shares tips specifically for filmmakers. Check the show notes for other links as well. Right now, we move on to film recommendations relevant for teachers. What are some that stay with you? Because to me, that if it stays with you, there's got to be something in that that's just a bit special. You know, what what are some of those for you? Oh, there's so many that that stay with me. Um, one of the short films of, of the past two years that really has stuck with me is a short film called Home, directed by Daniel Malloy. Car boot slams. A man looks concerned. Movie review says. I feel like I've been punched in the stomach, Radio Times. A car drives onto a ship. Car arrives at a new country. War scenes, distress. Review says, a hypnotic tale of struggle. Sad procession of people in a hostile landscape. Review says, a powerful testament. 
So we actually featured that on Staff Picks last week for a seven-day run exclusively on Vimeo. We released it uh, in conjunction with World Refugee Day, which was on June 20th. Um, And it's this really, really powerful short film um, that basically takes the current refugee crisis and kind of flips it on on its head, where rather than have a Syrian family trying to get into the UK, you've got this British family... Uh, that has been thrust into the refugee crisis and is fleeing some un, unidentified threat back at home, and so they're trying to get they're trying to go east. So rather than having all the refugees go west, they're going east, and so they're thrust into this refugee crisis of their own. And it's it's incredibly powerful. It it to be honest, I, I, a lot of people I know who've watched it, and this includes myself, feel kind of guilty when they watch it because what it does is. It, it elicits this r- emotional response that unfortunately you don't necessarily get when you watch the news or when you even watch documentaries about the actual real-life refugee crisis. And I would say that, and uh, to be blunt, I think it's because it's harder for Western audiences to relate to the current refu- the refugees that are suffering in the current refugee crisis because of cultural differences, because of lang- language differences, things like that. And I don't think that that's any fault of the viewer, but what's so powerful about this film is that it forces you to confront that and say, why is it that when I see this British family get thrown into a refugee crisis, I'm feeling all these emotions that I don't feel when I turn on the nightly news and witness things that are actually happening in real life to real people. It's this really, yeah, it's a really powerful film directed by Daniel Malloy. I highly recommend that people check it out if they have the opportunity to. An experience for me that really stands out was I was probably 12 years old. I think I was in like seventh grade. And um, my social studies teacher, I'm trying to remember why we watched it. Oh, yeah, we were studying the American judicial system and, and law and things like that. And, um, he had us watch uh, 12 angry men, the Sidney Lumet version. Of course. Fantastic. And, <laughs> and, and what's amazing to me after all these years is that I remember I was like glued to the screen when we watched 12 angry men. And, you know, if you were to describe that film, just if you're just like to read the synopsis and describe it to someone who hadn't seen it before, I think a 12-year-old boy is probably the last person that they would think that that film would speak to. Yet it did, and in in a really in a really deep way. And it's like one of my favorite films. And I and I think that there's something so amazing that about the fact that Sidney Lumet was able to make this film back in you know it was 1955 or you know it was in the mid to late 50s, I think that spoke to a 12-year-old right. 40 years later. Yeah, it is incredible, yeah. So to me that speaks about, you know, what what I'm partly passionate about too is film and its intersection with education. So being a teacher, I'm always, you know, I'm interested where those two overlap because I think that all film is educational. So I'm curious to get your opinion about where you see this this overlap as well. And, and a couple of the ones that I picked out um, from Vimeo, one of them is... Um, called The Function of Music with Jad Abumrad, yeah. This short film is very hard to describe, but in the following more straightforward extract, we see the close-up of a vinyl record player intercut with a man listening and describing his feelings. I'm going to play you some music. I'm going to play some music. I'm going to play some music. And I want you to tell me how it makes you feel. 
How does that make me feel? That makes me feel like I'm doomed. Maybe you want to like run out and storm the streets. That feels very comfortable to me. I love that. That's amazing. Like I just watched that and I just, I, I can't remember how I came. It was a staff pick, um, but I just thought, wow, it was, it's a documentary. It's educational, but it, it attempts to answer just a couple of big questions. What is sound? What is music? And it just explores that and just plays with this big, big ideas, you know. Yeah, Jad Abramrod actually is the co-host of a really popular radio show here in the U.S. called uh, Radio Lab. Um, it's, yeah, it's one of the most popular radio shows and podcasts uh, in America, and and he's all about sound. Like, that's his thing. And so if you listen to Radio Lab, I mean, they, they cover all sorts of topics, but, like, it tends to be, you know, have a science focus to it for sure, and the sound design on Radio Lab is just is incredible. And Chad Abramrod is the guy who does all the sound on it, and he also kind of co-hosts it. Um, yeah, I think you know what. I think video more than any art can kind of like trick you into learning something. Um, you know, it's one thing to read about music in a textbook where they kind of break it down you know, and give you definitions and things, but it's something entirely different to watch, you know, a, a really kinetic four minute short that, uh, that walks you through different types of music and, you know, the emotional response and you're you know sitting face to face with Jad Abenrod, who really knows a thing or two about music and sound and has some, has an interesting perspective on it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a very efficient method of teaching because you're working with visuals and, and sounds. Um, to to explain something, and so I think that you know you, it can be that much more powerful and and compelling. You know, like I was saying earlier, you know, I, I grew up watching a lot of TV, and 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 some of the stuff that I watched was you know was secretly educational. You know, I mean, and, and sometimes not so secretly. You know, it's like I watched Bill Nye the Science Guy all the time growing up, and uh, and, then, and I knew at the time when I was watching that, that they were trying to teach me something. Bill Nye was really entertaining and it was really interesting. And so, I, and so I watched that. But then, you know, when you go back even further, like when you're really little, you, you watch Sesame Street. Kids who watch Sesame Street, they have no idea that there's some sort of ulterior motive here and that their parents are trying to instill them with like, you know, progressive urban values and teach them the alphabet at the same time. But it's really, it's a really effective tool for, for you know, getting through to kids um, and capturing their attention and capturing their imagination. You know, in a very practical sense i use video tutorials all the time like i uh i went to to can back in may and it was my first time going and when you go to the gala screenings there you have to wear a tuxedo and you have to wear a bow tie and i have never worn a bow tie before i have no idea how to tie a bow tie maybe i wore a clip-on bow tie when i was a kid at my uncle's wedding or something like that but yeah so i mean the, the it, there was no question i i, I wasn't going to go ask someone hey can you show me how to tie a bow tie i immediately went online i went on youtube and I, I googled, you know, bow tie tutorial, how to tie a bow tie. I watched two of them and within 15 minutes I knew how to tie a bow tie. Obviously for something as tactile as that, you know, video is, is, is a really good explainer. But even for, you know, more uh, abstract concepts like music, like you were pointing out with the Jad Abumrad video, um, it can be an incredible tool for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I guess what you're talking about too in, in the tying the tie thing is is more instructional learning. You know, that's I, I want to learn, learn this specific detail, so I'm going to go for that. But I, I'm, I'm excited about the kind of films that, you know, we see on Vimeo and at festivals because yep. they 
open up the mind to these bigger ideas. So it makes us who we are. The function of music um, did raise a question about suitability for different ages. So I think, I don't think there was anything particularly offensive, but some of the language in it, you'd probably go, oh, I don't know whether I'd show this to my, you know, my grade fives or fours or whatever. What, how do you decide when you're, when you're staff picking, you know, whether something, I know you have a mature tag, you know, what, what, what's it called? Censorship policies do you have, I guess, and age suitability um, you know, historically, we've been pretty careful with staff picks not to offend the audience. Obviously, you know, Vimeo is available all around the world. People have all sorts of values and value sets and, and traditions. We don't want to offend people if, if we can avoid it. Um, that said, um, you know, we do have a core demographic on the site. People, you know, between the ages of, you know, I'd say 26 and 40 um, tend to be uh concentrated in urban areas. So, you know, the core of our audience is not necessarily going to be offended by some dirty language here or there, even, you know, sexual innuendo or even, you know, like lovemaking scenes, things like that. That said, yeah, we have to have tools in place to make sure that if people don't want to see that, they can avoid it. And so um, that's where the mature content ratings come in. And that's something that we introduced, I think like a year, year and a half ago, some two years ago, maybe. And so what that means is, you know, if something's marked flagged as mature, it won't show up in certain places. Typically, if someone is logged out, if it's their first time coming to Vimeo, that they won't see something that has been flagged as mature. And then also any user can go into their mature content, uh, like settings and stipulate what they do or don't want to see. You know, recently, we've definitely loosened up quite a bit in terms of what we're willing to promote via staff picks. We realized, you know, over the years that one of the distinct advantages to being an ad-free platform as Vimeo is that we're not beholden to advertisers in a way that other platforms are. And by not being beholden to advertisers, we can get away with more. We can we can have some foul language. There can be some sex. There can be some violence. And we don't have, you know, Procter & Gamble breathing down our neck about it. So we, we view that as a real advantage and as a real privilege as, as a site, and we want to lean into that. But like I said, we want to take certain actions to make sure that people aren't, you know, um, really offended by what it is that we're putting out there for sure. Yeah, yeah. I was reading a little bit. I was um, stalking you on uh, LinkedIn and reading a bit about you and, and uh, noticed that you speak two languages. So you speak Spanish. And someone had mentioned that you were always able to find a Mexican, uh, you know, fast food outlet or something like that. Oh yeah, <laughs> thought, there's something going on there. And and I, a lot of the uh, the viewers to my, you know, my my vodcast and and the podcast are teachers and teachers of uh, English to people who are you know non-native speakers, etc. So I was just curious, you know, how in your own learning of Spanish, you know, um, did you use film? Is that something that you yeah, I think so. I'm trying. I'm trying to think. Uh, I started taking Spanish when I was in fifth grade, so when I was about ten years old, and I took it all the way through mi- middle school and high school and into college a bit. And I was and I got to travel a fair amount to Latin America growing up. And I think 
when I was in high school, one of the things that we used to do is we would watch telenovelas, which is really fun because they're like obviously like really salacious and over the top. And they also tend to speak, you know, pretty standard Latin American Spanish. It's pretty easy to understand. So yeah, so I, I definitely had some experience watching uh, telenovelas. I re and I remember I, 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 I um, when I was in high school, I did a I did a homestay one summer in Costa Rica with a Costa Rican family. And my host father was a huge fan of this show called Sabado Gigante. And that was shot in Miami and it was hosted by this really famous Chilean uh, television personality. And it was just so over the top. It was like a cross between, you know, like Saturday Night Live and The Price is Right and like Oprah and like it, it just made no sense. It was a total variety show. Johnny Carr, I don't know. Lots of lots of influences, and I used to watch that with him, and that was really fun. <laughs> um, and the well, the reason I'm interested in that too, I was trying to find it as sort of a third short film to recommend. I came across Red Rabbit. This dialogue-free animation opens with a man in an apartment block going to his door to find a woman smiling at him. Apparently, she wants to borrow some sugar. Clearly, she's wanting to be friendly, but he's too embarrassed about his secret: the oversized rabbit living in his tiny living space. That's it, banging in the background. She wants to come in, but because he's so embarrassed, he just grabs her empty sugar bowl and slams the door. Yeah, I guess I was just curious to know if you knew how many people were using short films from Vimeo in an educational context like that, and, and what it opens up for teachers in that way. To be honest, what I'm, what I'm most familiar with is the way film schools use uh, staff picks and shorts from Vimeo as as references in their courses. And that that I know, at least anecdotally, I don't have research to back it up, but I, I do I do talk to a lot of filmmakers who teach on the side and I know that they they look to staff picks and encourage their students watch staff picks regularly as as a source of inspiration, as a way to kind of see what sort of techniques people are experimenting with. Um, you know, I think it, it's a huge resource in that regard. In terms of how it can be applied to just kind of like broader humanities. Um, hard to say, but I do think that there's something to be said for these kind of bite-size videos that can be incorporated into, you know, a 45-minute class plan. Um, I think that shorts are ideal for that. And, you know, and again, you know, going back to the, the topic of like, you know, webcam videos, I have a hard time seeing someone incorporating that into their curriculum. Whereas, yeah, something like Red Rabbit, which, uh, you know, I think Red Rabbit would, would fit really nicely into like a course on psychology or something like that, because it's, you know, it's kind of about how we all have, uh, you know, these secrets that we keep from one another that we assume that no one else could possibly relate to, or that, you know, no one else could possibly uh, be harboring this this sort of feeling that they don't um, they don't express, but then of course when everything comes crashing down, you realize that we all have a red rabbit, or I guess it's a gray rabbit and a <laughs> raccoon, yeah, you know, right. that were that were hiding yeah, you know, at, yeah, at home. Yeah, yeah, so um, yeah, I definitely think that there are applications for for all of these shorts, and and I think you know, the, given that they are short and. Uh, you know, in many cases, like you said, you know, nonverbal. So you could maybe, you know, bring it in for uh, non-native speakers or maybe children who haven't developed, you know, sp you know speaking skills uh, quite as much. Um, I think that 
there are certainly applications there. But I'm not, I, I'm, I, I cannot profess to be anyone who knows anything about education. So maybe I'm totally <laughs> wrong, but that's, that's my hunch. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. And that's what I love about them too. Wait, do you think short films can change the world? Yeah, I mean, that film Home, I'm telling you, uh, that, that, that Daniel Malloy film that I was talking about earlier, that is certainly a film that could change the world. I would, I would pay good money to have, you know, uh, you know, a, a lot of my fellow citizens here in the U.S., you know, watch a film like that. Or even watch, um, uh, you know, just any short documentary about the refugee crisis have them watch that and then reassess their position on our country's attitude uh, and policy towards refugees. I, I really think it would be hard to watch a short, you know, there's a short documentary called Refuge um, by a documentary, a documentarian named uh, Matthew Furpo. Um, there's another one that was in our best of the year. I think it's called 4.1 Miles. Um, it was put out by the New York Times. These are really, really powerful documentaries about the refugee crisis. And I challenge anyone who is opposed to, you know, not just the U.S., but any country lending a helping hand to these people to watch a film like that and then look me in the eyes and say that they, they stand by their, their previous position. I, I just don't think it's possible. And so, yeah, in that regard, I think short films can absolutely change the world. I think that in... You know, in a mere 10 minutes, you can, you know, learn something about a crisis that's half a world away that you didn't know anything about previously. And it can absolutely shape, you know, your decisions as a citizen, you know, who, who, who you decide to vote for, you know, how you decide to, you know, carry yourself as a, a citizen of the world. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I highly encourage people to engage with short documentaries in particular um, if, if we're talking about changing the world. Yeah. Look, I've got so many other questions I could ask and there's probably, I could go on for ages, but um, I've got one other question that some a, a media teacher in Australia said, I would love to know this for my students. How would a keen media student pursue a career at Vimeo? Yeah, I, well, I, could, I mean, I my experience... Him, How could I get a job at Vimeo? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it starts by going to the jobs page. So if you go to vimeo.com slash jobs, there's a whole slew of, of positions that, that, are, that are posted. We, we are hiring. We are growing as a company. So there are certainly opportunities out there. Um, to be honest, like I, you know, recommending that people, you know, set their sights on video curation is their full-time gig. I'm not sure that that's the highest percentage play that I can offer people. Um, I do think that if you really would like to work for Vimeo or any website, the number one best way to make that happen is to learn how to code. There's huge demand for developers um, and engineers um, here at, at Vimeo and I know every website under the sun. There just aren't enough engineers out there for the amount that we need to build as, as websites. So yeah, I mean, I wish to be honest. Like, even though I'm, I'm, you know, I tend to be more creatively inclined. Um, I would have, you know, done a great service for myself uh, as a student had I taken some computer science. And I'm even considering, you know, you know, learning some coding as an adult. Um, it's just that useful. And um, and in fact, I would argue that if you are creatively inclined, that's even more of a reason to learn how to code because. The, de the developers and engineers that can kind of combine, you know, left brain and right brain are the ones that 
excel and and really thrive um that that's just an incredible combination of skills that few people possess so yeah if even if you're thinking of going to art school like i would seriously consider learning how to code because if you can if you're a great artist and you're an engineer like you will get any job you want i'm I'm convinced yeah well here's a secret i i've actually got a computer science degree and then i went to film film school and uh i I watch all my um friends that uh stayed in it and they're they're doing quite well for themselves and i don't know i'm enjoying my life but i'm not saying i'm rolling in money (laughs) well but But that's the most important thing you're enjoying your life so i am i am Find all the film links and related notes in the description and look out for the edited highlights of this discussion on YouTube. This show is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. To learn more, visit edupodcastnetwork.com.